0: should introduce myself, and Woody already has, but for those who don't know, I'm Rick Beach. Um, Woody's asked me to, uh, to speak this morning. Um, I'll be very honest, I, I, I changed it about three or four times, and uh, what I have might change as I speak, but what I'd like to uh, talk about is, yes, very basic, but very key, um, extremely important, and and that is the gospel. But before we get started, let's pray, please, and ask God's blessing. Father, uh, I pray that uh, during these next few minutes, Lord, that you'd speak to us, show us, from your word, what you'd have us to know, and Lord, uh, most importantly, what you'd have us to be, please. Pray this in Jesus' name. I want to talk about the gospel because it's a big deal. It's a big deal this day and age. It has been in years past and even decades. For the Christian church, for the evangelical church, what the gospel is and what it isn't is is critical. Let me say what what I believe it is not. What the gospel that we find in the Bible is not. It is not feeding the poor or clothing the poor. As wonderful as that function, that activity, that grace is, as needful as it is, especially in this time, it's, it's not the gospel. Truly, what it, it, what it is, it's an, a result of the gospel. It's an implication of the gospel. It's something that occurs when the gospel has gotten into the heart of a person and changed that heart. And that changed person... Sees a need. Seize the poor person. Seize the person who doesn't have the clothes that are necessary. Maybe in a cold day. And they take care of that need. So it, it's a result of the gospel. But it isn't the gospel. Voices today also speak of the gospel being um, an effort to stop human Trafficking. Uh, For any of those of you that like to listen to uh, 88.3, K-Love, they speak a lot about human trafficking and how bad that is. And it is a horrible thing. But again, stopping human trafficking is not the gospel. It is an implication of the gospel. It is something that we do uh, with the gospel in us, but it is not the gospel and lastly, there are current voices in America that that say the gospel is that we should transform culture or we should have global transformation. Uh, these people uh, don't speak of salvation through Jesus. they speak of remaking the world. They look ahead in in revelation and they see where Jesus speaks that one day He will make a new heaven and a new earth. And they see their commission as having to go out and start that process now and create and renew culture. Now please don't misunderstand. There's no question the Scripture is clear that when a person comes to Christ, their heart is changed. They're a new person in Christ. All things are new the old has passed. And to the extent that that transforms society, then the gospel is transformation. But it's not rebuilding of cities or renewal of culture. It's having a new life in Christ. It's the good news of Jesus. And that, that's what's critical for the church 20 years ago and for the church today. Approximately 60 years ago, these these forces, especially to feed the poor and to clothe the needy, became a big deal in many good evangelical churches. This is 1900, 1910, 1920, 1930. And they started doing these things, and they did them more. And as time went on, the gospel the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, start taking a back seat to the feeding of the poor and the clothing of the needy. As time went on into the 40s and the 50s, these very good churches who once, the pulpits preached the gospel on a continuous basis, no longer heralded the gospel. They were out feeding the poor and clothing the needy. But the gospel wasn't, was not preached, and the gospel is lost. It is critical that we understand what the, what the gospel is, and that, that we then, then know the treasure that we have, and that we not lose the gospel. So what, what then is the gospel? The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. There are a lot of verses in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but mainly the New Testament, that speak of the gospel. But I'd like us to look, if we would all, for those who have a Bible, if you'd turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We're now talking about what the gospel is. This is Paul... Talking to the Church of Corinth, and he says, "Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance." What I also received, that, and here's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain. But I'd labor even more than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so ye believed. This, I think, is a good summary of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and what it means for us. But I'd like to point out just, just a few things. The first of which is in verse um, 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance, what I also received. Paul speaks of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, as being of first importance. I, th- I think these are critical words, especially in this day and age, when there are other voices telling us what the gospel is, or what where the gospel should be. Paul is saying the gospel should be central to the life of the church. It should be central to our life. Paul Paul would say that when you go to a Bible-believing evangelical church, you should hear the gospel. You should hear it clearly, and you should hear it often. In any given Christian home, the gospel should be of first importance, Paul would tell us. It should be something that is spoken of a lot. That is that is heralded to neighbors and to friends, that occupies a key position, a position of first importance. The gospel, in summary, if I many of you have heard the gospel for years, it, it's an issue of righteousness. I I see in the scriptures that God is saying. You must be righteous to inherit the kingdom of God. You must be completely righteous. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. He also said in Matthew 5.48, be perfect. For your heavenly Father is perfect. So the standard for you and I to get to heaven, to enjoy the kingdom of God, is complete righteousness. The problem is, for a while that was, that was good. There was complete righteousness. But then Adam and Eve sinned. Sin entered the world, and we being descendants of Adam and Eve, sin has laced into our lives. And we are not, we are not completely righteous. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. With that sin, with that transgression, comes God's wrath because God's holy. And the Bible's clear. The Bible's very clear that with that wrath comes condemnation. And the condemnation that the Bible speaks of is hell. Yes, it's graphic. Yes, it's shocking. But it's true. The Bible speaks of hell being a horrible, horrible place. Horrible, even eternally horrible place. A place where those who are in hell will grind their teeth in agony. The Bible speaks of it as gnashing their teeth. They'll beg for a drop of water. And the Bible says the worm never dies. It just goes on and on and on. But there's good news. There's good news. And the good news is Jesus. Jesus lived the perfect life. He lived the totally righteous life that none of us could. None are righteous. No, not one. But Jesus did. He lived the perfect life and by that life and his death for those who trust in Christ they can have complete righteousness they can be declared totally righteous in god they can escape the penalty of sin which is death which is hell in first second corinthians excuse me 5:21 we'll turn there in just a minute Paul speaks of of this concept, and I I think there's some of you that, if you're like me, uh, this is a concept that's maybe not terribly familiar. I hope it is familiar, but it may not be. It certainly, uh, of late, uh, has not been for me. Let's let's both, or all, excuse me, turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21, please. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'll start in verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then the verse I want to look at. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is just one small verse that is a tremendous, tremendous concept, a tremendous doctrine. It's it's essentially justification by faith in a nutshell. And it says that Christ, who lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we wouldn't die, is taking our sin upon Himself... Who knew no sin, he knew no sin, takes it upon himself and in exchange, we who were sinful get his righteousness imputed or credited to us. He ends up with our sin, we get his righteousness. Theologians have called that, and Woody I believe has mentioned it, theologians have called that the great exchange. And it believe me, it is a great exchange. Who among us could live the righteous life to gain admittance into heaven? Who could do it? None of us. We could try. We might make it five minutes. You may make it ten, but you're not going to make it much beyond that. Jesus did it for 33 years. And we get his righteousness credited, imputed to us when we trust Christ, when we recognize him and trust him as Savior and although we're, we're we're here in the in the season of Thanksgiving, would you not agree that is something truly to be thankful for—that we that He would give us His righteousness, and God would then take the gavel out and say, "Declared just, just righteous in Jesus because of Christ." Amen. Praise God for that. And as just people, people justified by by Christ's righteousness, we enjoy labels like Ephesians one five says we're the sons of God. The sons of God. Romans eight seventeen even calls us co heirs, co heirs with Christ. We we inherit what Christ inherits. 1 Peter two nine were referred to for those who have trusted Christ, trusted his perfect life as their substitute on the cross and his death, were called a royal priesthood. First Peter two nine also calls us a holy nation. These are these are labels, these are identifiers for Christians. They're sons of God, inferentially daughters of God. They're co-heirs with Christ. They're a royal priesthood. They're a holy nation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you have never trusted Christ, these labels don't apply to you. The, the righteousness that Paul speaks of in Second Corinthians 5.21 does not apply to you. If you're here and you are not trusting Christ as Savior, you're, the Bible says, under condemnation. You're under God's wrath. And what that condemnation gives you is is a horrible end. It is a path that sends you to hell, to a place again where there'll be gnashing of teeth, begging just for a drop of water, and where the worm never dies it just goes on and on and on i implore you if you're here and you have never trusted christ that you, the day would be the day you trust christ i'm glad you're here you're here for a reason but the message that we would have for you is you must be in christ you must trust christ If not, you are under condemnation. For the Christian, the gospel is not not only just a way to heaven, a way to be saved, a way to be declared righteous and justified by God. As one theologian says, it's not just the start of the Christian life. It's not just the ABCs, like the ABCs are the start of the alphabet. But it's the A to Z of our life. It's the gospel is how we're saved and the gospel is how we live until one day when we're glorified and with the Lord. That's critical because that's a message that I, I, over the years, over the past many years, have not really understood. I'm just starting to understand that. The gospel is much more than just the start of the Christian life. It applies to everything. You say, well, how? Let me give you an example. Think of the husband and wife, and they're having a little trouble. They're not getting along. And how would the gospel speak to their situation? Here we have the husband. He won't sacrifice for his wife. Now, we we know in Ephesians 5, it says, men, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Okay? But how does the gospel apply to him not loving or not sacrificing for his wife? The gospel shows that Christ sacrificed everything for us, for people who were sinners, gave his all. So that that, that gospel implication is instructive to that husband who says, I'm just not going to sacrifice for her. She just, she's just so demanding. He says, no, I have the example of Christ on a cross who gave everything as a sacrifice for me. I will sacrifice for my wife. And we look at the wife. And we say, what gospel implication would be applicable to her? Yes, we can go look at Ephesians 5, and it says, wives, submit to your husbands. But what implication of submitting do we see in the gospel? We see Jesus. Fully submitting to the will of the Father. Not wanting to die. Not wanting to be sacrificed. But willingly submitting to the will of the Father. And the wife says, I see it in the gospel. So the gospel to this couple applies more than the days that they were saved. But it applies to the day that they're having this fight. Or this problem. Or this week. Or this month. In which this problem is occurring. The gospel applies and is applicable to all of our lives. Let me just read you a few things I've just written down of how how the gospel can apply and be more than just the start of your Christian life. I've spoken of this: the issue of sacrifice. The gospel implication is Jesus sacrificed for us. If you have an issue of service, a person won't serve, won't... Won't serve one another. What does the gospel say to him or her? Jesus came to serve, and not to be served, but to be a ransom and to serve many. If you have an issue of love, person won't love. What's the implication of the gospel in the Christian life for a person who won't love? God so loved the world that He gave His, his only begotten Son. What about forgiveness? In the Christian life, you won't forgive. What's the Gospel tell you? The Gospel says God forgives us because of Jesus. And I can't forgive my neighbor or my wife or my friend. What about the issue of humility, of pride? What's the Gospel tell us? Jesus humbled himself. Here he is, God. Yes, he's the God-man, but he humbles himself to the cross. What about holiness? The Christian is told to be holy. What implication do you see of the gospel about holiness? Jesus lived the perfect life, completely righteous. The gospel answers the need for holiness in the Christian life. What about the issue of, ra- of racism? What about the issue of racism? The gospel has an answer. The gospel is offered to all. All are created in the image of God. It's neither male nor female, neither Jew nor Greek. But the gospel is offered to all equally. There is no racism in the gospel. And the gospel speaks to racism in our lives. The last one that I I wrote down was selfishness. What does the gospel speak to us with respect to selfishness in our life? The gospel says that Christ emptied himself, emptied himself for us. No question, this concept that the gospel is more than the ABCs or the start of the Christian life is true. So you who teach Sunday school, you who teach Bible studies, you who stand up here and preach, show your listeners how the gospel applies to all of life and and as you do that, your listeners will see the fullness of the gospel, see the breadth of the gospel. And their understanding of their gospel will increase. And the gospel will increasingly become, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it will become of first importance in their lives. As we consider the gospel, there are many reasons why we need to share the gospel. For those who've come to Sunday School... uh, this, this will sound a little like a review, uh, but it is my heart. And uh, let me just give three of many reasons why we need to share this wonderful gospel. The first being that we desire to be obedient to God's commands. In the book of Acts... Paul says, I am compelled to preach the gospel. I am obligated. I can't not preach the gospel. And when the the Bible says preach the gospel, it it doesn't necessarily mean the gospel is being spoken from a high platform on a Sunday morning at 11 o'clock by some guy wearing a tie. No. The gospel being preached is you telling your neighbor across the fence after you've mowed the lawn about Jesus. That's preaching the gospel. And Paul's saying, I'm compelled to do it. I'm compelled to do it. Are you, do you feel compelled to do it? Do I feel compelled to do it? Gotta tell you, for years, uh, for as many years as I got fingers and toes, I I didn't feel compelled to do it. And I didn't. In Acts 8:4. The scriptures speak of those who were scattered, went about. This is the early church. This is a record of the early church. They went about preaching the gospel. Of course, the flagship verse for sharing the gospel is Matthew 28. Go ye therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and lo, I am with you always. Absolutely necessary. Necessary that our lives be indicative of this kind of compulsion that Paul spoke of, preaching the gospel, making disciples. The last, the last verse, there are many more, where we're told by God that we are to, to commit to sharing the gospel is First Peter chapter 3, where we're told to be able to give it a, an answer for the hope that lies within us, for anyone who asks. And we're to do it with kindness and gentleness. Excuse me. Gentleness and respect. So, we want to share the gospel to be obedient to just four commands that I that I mentioned. Many more in the Scriptures. We also want to share the gospel because we have a love for the lost. Hell is a horrible place. It is a real place. If your neighbor is not in Christ. If my neighbor isn't in Christ, that is their destiny. I mean, I think about my neighbors, and I think, have you really thought about what it's going to be like for them? And i got to confess, I have not. But hell is a horrible place. We've got to love the lost. We've got to be like the father in the story of the prodigal son who sees his son, who now wants to come back to the father, which is a picture of something coming to God through Christ. And the father runs down the road to greet him. He says, get the robe out. Go kill the best steer so we can have a party. My son has come home. we got to love the lost. we got to love the lost. And the last reason is our love for God that we might love to see God glorified that His holiness and more and His justice but more importantly His mercy is shown to the world that He would send His Son in total mercy an act of mercy on the part of God and He would send His Son to die for us his sinless son that glorifies god there's a there's a um, congregational minister i want to read from him uh, what he said about well it's from the 1800s and he, he 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 speaks in old english so hang in there i might have trouble reading it and he gets right to the point uh, He says this is about having a love for the lost. This is about the condition of the Christian and and how they perceive the unsaved and the need to tell the unsaved. The fellow's name is Ed Payson, the pastor's name, excuse me. I cannot, I must not, however, conclude without addressing a word, my professing friends, to you. And I hope you will bear with me if, in view of such a subject as this, I address you with apparent severity. An apostle teaches ministers that they must sometimes rebuke professing Christians sharply. But I trust my sharpness will be the sharpness of love. And I know that I shall say nothing to you half as severe as the reproaches which I have directed against myself while preparing this discourse." We all deserve perdition a thousand times for our stupid insensibility to the situation of those who are perishing around us. We profess to believe the Word of God, but can you all prove that you believe it? Do you act as if you believe it? What? Believe that many of your acquaintances, your children, are in danger of the fate which now has been described, speaking of hell. Dare you go to God and say, Lord, I believe thy word. I believe that all thy threatenings will be fulfilled and then turn away and coolly pursue your worldly business without uttering one agonizing cry for those who are exposed to these threatenings of hell. Dare you go and claim relationship to Christ and profess to have his spirit without which you are none of His, and then make no effort or only a few faint efforts to save those or to lead them to Christ, for whom He shed not tears only, but His blood? Oh, if you can do this, where are the bowels? I will not say of a Christian, but of a man. Go, I may say to such, go, inconsistent, cruel, "'Hard-hearted professors, go slumber over the ruin of immortal souls. "'Wrap yourself up in your selfish temporal interests "'and say, I've got no time to spare for rescuing others from everlasting burnings. "'Go wear out your life in acquiring property and money for your children "'and leave their souls to perish in the fire that will never be quenched. "'Go adorn their bodies and banish from them, if possible, the seeds of disease.' But leave in their bosoms that immortal worm, which will gnaw them forever. And when God asks, Where is thy child, thy brother, thy friend, thy neighbor? Reply with impious cane, I know not, I care not. Am I his keeper? But I cannot proceed further in this strain. I would rather beseech and melt and win you by tenderness. Say then, Christian, Dost thou believe that Christ died to save thee from thy misery, which has been imperfectly described? He's talking about hell. Dost thou believe that if he had not loved thee and given himself for thee, the gnawing worm and the unquenchable fire would have been thy portion forever? Oh, then, where is thy gratitude, thy love? Those are sober words. Those are are hard-to-understand words. They're old English words, but they're, 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 they're to the point. And the point is, do we love the lost? Do we have time for the lost? Or do we have time for a lot of other things? We must proclaim Christ. The gospel, Paul said, must have first importance. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul also says that Jesus should have the preeminence in all things. That's essentially the same word of first importance. Jesus should have first place in all things. The gospel and Christ should be first and foremost in our individual lives, in our church life. Christ has the first place in the Bible. You can see it in the New Testament, no question. The gospel accounts, the uh, epistles speak of Christ multiple times. But you ask yourself, where in the Old Testament is Christ spoken of? He's spoken of in types and shadows. But it's astounding what this man has done to show the existence of Christ in the Old Testament. Let me read this to you. This is from Sinclair Ferguson, who is a uh, pastor in... South Carolina, Columbia. And he's talking about seeing Christ in the Old Testament. He says, and he, he, he analogizes it to Hebrews, where Jesus is spoken of as the better everything. For those who have had a chance to look at Hebrews. He says this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is a true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God, taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him. And we can say to God, now we know that you loved us because you did not withhold your son, Jesus, your only son, whom you love from us. Jesus is a true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved. So we, like Jacob, only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and to discipline us. Jesus is a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who, struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb. Innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He is the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's really not about you. It's about Jesus. As we think about the lost and we think about the gospel and what treasure we have in the gospel and God's commands for us to share the gospel, we should not faint. We have the treasure of the world. We need to share it. Invite a neighbor to church. Tell a friend about Christ. Invite someone to a Bible study. Let's make sure that as we live the remaining parts of our lives that we can look back and say, I'm God-honoring, I'm gospel-speaking, and I'm a neighbor-loving Christian. That's what God would have us to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You for... Uh, Jesus, thank you for the righteousness that he gives us. Thank you for declaring those of us who are trusting Christ as being justified, as declared righteous. Thank you for what the gospel and what Jesus uh, mean to us, what the gospel shows us uh, in all of life. Help us to live it, God. Help us to love people.